0: You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com
1: Hello friends, welcome back to CorbettReport.com. I'm your host, James Corbett of The Corbett Report, and you are tuned into Questions for Corbett the regular podcast series where you send in your questions and I answer them. And as always, there's a million ways to send in your questions via the contact form on CorbettReport.com, via Twitter. You can submit a video question on YouTube or Vimeo or whatever video sharing uh, platform you choose. Whatever it is, just let me know somehow by homing pigeon or whatever that uh, that question is out there and I will add it to the mailbag. And it's always a hefty mailbag, and I always have to pick and choose because there's never enough time to answer all the questions that come in, speaking of which, even less time than usual this month because, unfortunately, I am preparing to go to Mexico for a poco at the end of this month, and, uh, well, I just don't have a lot of time uh, on the plate, but I thought I would knock down a few questions while I'm here, so why don't we get straight into it this uh, month by opening up the mailbag, and first we'll go to a question from John. I am finding difficulty and astonishment attempting to discover any serious legal challenge since 1913 to the Federal Reserve Act. Has the Supreme Court or any lower court ever ruled that it is in any way unconstitutional? Well, thank you very much for that question, John. That is a very apt question, isn't it? Especially because, as viewers of the most recent New World Next Week will know, Canadians are currently suing uh, the Bank of Canada about its practices in uh, the current day and age, foregoing its responsibility as a public utility and allowing private banks to issue debt-based money to the government, um, at interest, of course. So, what about in the US context? What about federal legal challenges to the Federal Reserve? Well, uh, we, I should note that I did cover certain aspects of the legal status of the Federal Reserve in my Federal Reserve documentary, Century of Enslavement. What is the uh, proper relationship? What should be the proper relationship between a chairman of the Fed and a president of the United States?
2: Well, first of all, the Federal Reserve is an independent agency. And that means basically that
1: uh, there is no other agency of government
2: which can overrule actions that we take.
1: The Fed goes on in its self-mythologization to state that it is not a private, profit-making institution. This characterization is dishonest at best and an outright lie at worst. The regional banks are themselves private corporations, as noted in a 1928 Supreme Court ruling. Instrumentalities like the national banks or the Federal Reserve banks, in which there are private interests, are not departments of the government. They are private corporations in which the government has an interest. This point is even admitted by the Federal Reserve's own senior counsel.
2: We, are, our regulations do specify overall terms for the, the lending, but the day-to-day operation of the banking activities are conducted by the Federal Reserve Banks. They are banks, and indeed they do lend. And they So do they're, they're their own
0: agency, then, essentially, They are in not that agencies. Regard.
2: Yes, they're not agencies, Your Honor. They are persons under FOIA. Each Federal Reserve bank, of the stock is owned by the member banks in the district 100% uh, privately held. They have private boards of directors. Majority of those boards are appointed by the independent banks, private banks in the district, they're not agencies.
1: That, of course, pertaining to the issue of whether or not the Federal Reserve regional banks are private or public, and yes, they are private, and more on that, of course, in the Century of Enslavement documentary and the complex, the deliberately complex web of institutions that make up the Federal Reserve system. But specifically on the question of the constitutionality of the Federal Reserve, this is a question that arose quite early in the history of the United States, in fact, immediately upon the adoption of the Constitution, in which there were two competing parties trying to uh, bend the ear of President Washington towards their will, uh, Thomas Jefferson arguing for, uh, sorry, arguing against the constitutionality of a central bank, and Alexander Hamilton arguing for that constitutionality. You can go read their own words on this subject, uh, and I will include the links in the show notes, of course, and you can read Jefferson's opinion on the constitutionality of a national bank, 1791, in which he writes, quote, I consider the foundation of the Constitution as laid on this ground, that, quote, all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states or to the people, i.e. the 12th Amendment. To take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specially drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power no longer susceptible of any definition. The incorporation of a bank and the powers assumed by this bill have not, in my opinion, been delegated to the United States by the Constitution. And he goes on to make that argument in some more detail, but not a whole lot of detail. He makes a very succinct and very readable argument. Contrast that to Hamilton, who writes the bloated corpse of Hamilton's opinion as to the constitutionality of the Bank of the United States, 1791. And, well, for those of you who haven't read through it, it's, uh, it's quite a large uh, uh, by chunk to, uh, to bite off and chew, and uh, will definitely provide some good bed- bedtime reading if you want something to doze off to. Anyway, uh, um, you can go and read it for yourself and uh, judge whether or not Hamilton's argument has much merit uh basically arguments for the constitutionality of the establishment of a national bank make judicious use of the uh so-called elastic clause of section 8 of of uh, article 1 which basically says that to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or office thereof basically saying congress can do anything at once in fulfillment of its attempts to fulfill any of these powers. So that, again, can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. And Hamilton basically says, well, that means that we can make a bank. Because how do you regulate the value of a coin unless you have an ability to actually control the money supply itself? And how do you control the money supply itself? And that's where those arguments tend to lead. And that's where they did lead. And of course, we do know that ultimately, not only was Hamilton obviously successful in bending... Washington's ear towards his will and establishing the First Bank of the United States. But we know that uh, the issue of the constitutionality of a central bank in general was ruled on in 1819. At that time, it was the Second Bank of the United States, which was uh, ruled constitutional by McCulloch v. Maryland. Uh, Again, it was an 1819 Supreme Court decision, a nine to nothing vote in which the court argued with the uh, doctrine of implied powers and stated that the necessary and proper clause basically made the bank um, part of the Congress's oversight and mandate. The uh, Chief Justice Marshall, Marshall wrote, after the most deliberate consideration, it is the unanimous and decided opinion of this court that the act to incorporate the Bank of the United States is a law made in pursuance of the Constitution and is part of the supreme law of the land. Now, again, that's... Relating specifically to the Second Bank of the United States, but it means that at least the idea of a central bank in the United States is not against uh, the Constitution according to the Supreme Court, or at least according to that precedent. Regarding the Federal Reserve specifically, there have been a number of cases trying various parts of the Federal Reserve system and what it does, and paper money and Federal Reserve notes and, and all these types of things, and whether these are legal and whether they fit, uh, uh, whether they're constitutional. These have been tried in various cases, and for a overview of this, including an overview of this whole history, I will direct you to an interesting article that obviously comes at this from the very mainstream anti-conspiracist perspective, and so it has some interesting takes and assumptions in there that I obviously disagree with, but again, I'll throw the link in so uh, you can at least read about these various cases. U.S. v. Rickman, U.S. v. Wangrund, Nixon v. Individual, head of St. Joseph Mortgage Company, Ginter v. Southern, etc., ruling on various aspects of this, and of course, always ruling that it's all constitutional and above board, and the Federal Reserve is puppies and manna from heaven and exactly what the framers of the constitution had in mind so um yes there have been challenges various legal challenges over the centuries to central banking in general and over the last century to the federal reserve in particular and none of them have gotten anywhere towards devolving dissolving or otherwise disbanding the federal reserve system unfortunately um i suppose we could always hold hope but somehow, some court somewhere along the way is going to uh, rule differently, but um, I wouldn't hold your breath. All right, let's uh, move along to Paul, who writes, The globalists are obviously well-funded and well-planned. They plan decades ahead via their various think tanks. Do the alternative thinkers have their own think tank set up to anticipate and counter the globalists? Or is it a case of just individuals working on their own all the time? Perhaps events like Anarchapulco might be an early attempt at such a structure. Thank you for the question, Paul. This is an important question because it certainly pertains to the overall project of whatever it is we are attempting to do here. And who is we? Is we me and everyone who's listening to my voice right now? Well, I'm sure there are many people listening to my voice who would not consider themselves lumped in with everything I believe, and I'm sure I wouldn't lump myself in with everything that all of the viewers and listeners out there believe. So we have an interesting sticky issue here now clearly as i've articulated before i think there are different sides and players and teams and groupings within the overall quest to set up this you know world governmental structure and they fight and stab each other in the back etc but at the end of the day they won't do anything to fundamentally upset the system that they're they're trying to create here which is why there's there there are these think tanks and others that have the influence over the public policy that helped to shape and, and, and really shape the course of history. I mean, organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations, which aren't secret, really. I mean, most of their stuff is completely open and they publish their own quarterly and they they have all of this information out there in the public. Their member roster is up on their website. I mean, there's not a lot that's really secretive about the CFR or what it's attempting to do. It's just that most people don't bother to look into the history of that organization or the power that it wields. So these think tanks are important. They are core parts of what the, uh, that the powers that shouldn't be have been doing for generations now, setting up this system in painstaking detail in this intergenerational project that it is mind-boggling to even think about any individual or even one family, you know, attempting to do this. It has to be a collection of people working all under this massive umbrella, uh, under this system that, again, is the rings-within-rings system that we've talked about numerous times on this podcast that's been developed by the Jesuit order and, uh, Adam Weishaupt and was, uh, uh co-opted or taken taken on board by Cecil Rhodes for the Rhodes Roundtable and which is the basis for the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the CFR and all of these groups and groupings so they definitely have a system and a game plan and a method of operation that obviously clearly does work in the sense that they are building this system of overall control and it may be coming along slowly I think it is probably going a lot slower than they would like or have anticipated but it is happening as I'm sure we are all aware if we follow this type of news on a daily basis. So the question is, well, then what are we as an opposition to that overall agenda doing to similarly create whatever type of group, think tank, or whatever that can best counteract what's happening there? And that, to me, is trying to grab that brass ring of power in which well, you grab onto it and, well, we'll do what they're doing and we'll construct our own and it will fight against their system. To my mind, that isn't the actual way to fight this organization and centralization of power. I don't think centralized power can be fought effectively by centralized bodies like that working in that way to try to enact laws or whatever it may be to try to work towards some shared unified goal. I think the very point of what I'm attempting to do anyway is to further the idea of decentralization, devolution of power down back to the grassroots individual level, rather than having these overarching systems of control that we all have to give into. Can you fight fire with fire in that sense? I don't think so. And I think it's interesting that people often come at this alternative media movement in a, well, why aren't you guys all together on the same site? All, you know, so that we can all group and all do th- something together. And to my mind, that's 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 the real power of what we're doing. The real power that, or at least the promise of of the internet and, and open source media and all of this is that we can be spread out in a million different places, doing a million different things, approaching this in a million different directions. We don't have to agree on some agenda or everyone play nice about, you know, don't, don't say this or do say this. There's no rules. Everyone is an individual lone wolf out there. And we can come together when we want to, to cooperate operate and to work on things together, and we can do things apart when we want to. That, to me, is the beauty of this system, or anti-system, is I think the better way of putting it. So I am not really one for the idea of creating a think tank to put out, what, white paper documents to try to influence government policy. I mean, again, I think that's just completely the wrong way to go about doing it, because again, it puts the power back in the hands of that centralized bureaucratic process, which we know is bought and paid for anyway, behind the scenes by the banksters who control the money itself. So I don't see a way of fighting that fire with fire. But I do think that, A, the way that we are doing it as lone wolves is our strength. And also I think that, you know, events like whatever, Anarchapoco or any of the million other things that go on every year, are important because they do present ways that we can come together and we can we can meet like-minded people and we can find ways and points of accord and agreement where we can act together. But it doesn't mean we have to be in some group that we subsume our identity to, because again, I think that's exactly what we're trying to avoid. So that's a very important point, And when I've attempted to articulate before, I think I'll probably have to come back to that point in the future. But I do appreciate the question, Paul. And uh, I, you know, I, hey, I'm just me. That's just my opinion. If other people out there have their own opinion and want to start their own think tank or whatever, hey, go for it. You know, I, I hope it succeeds. That's all I can say. All right, let's move on to the next question. This time, Michael says, I see the release of the redacted pages, and he's referring to the 28 pages uh, that have not been released by, Saudi, or the, by the U.S. Uh, government um, that pertain to Saudi Arabia and 9-11. I see the release of the redacted pages as bringing on an additional delay in the truth being known on 9-11. I do not see any analysis of the redirection of issues that these pages will bring. Do you think that the Dems in the 2016 presidential election, the Democrats, will, would be able to use 9-11 against the Republicans' candidate? Or will the powers that shouldn't be forbid this? Thank you for the question, Michael. Last question first. Absolutely, that will not be a campaign issue. I guarantee it. I 100% guarantee it. Uh, it will not be put into that uh, left-right. The Democrats would... I mean, if they were ever going to do anything Anything to even approach touching 9 11 and the Republicans, they would have done so in 2006 when they took over uh, Congress which they didn't, that was when they suddenly went, oh, no, absolutely, impeachment's off the table, we're not going to do anything, we'll all play along, and that was the moment, the moment, when I knew, for myself, personally, that was when I went, oh, okay, it is, it's completely a game, they are never going to question the system, oh, it is all controlled by the same people, there is no deference left to right, that was when the penny dropped for me. 2006, I was like, well, this is the test, Either they are going to impeach and they're going to start finding out things about 9-11 and they're going to really go into this, or it's all a game. And I found out, unfortunately, it's all a game. So, no, it will not be a campaign issue. And you are right. I have maintained and continue to maintain that those 28 redacted pages that come from the congressional report on 9-11, the joint House and Senate uh, congressional inquiry into 9-11, When it was first released, there were 28 redacted pages. That was an open secret at the time. I remember it being reported at the time that the 28 pages was about foreign government involvement in 9-11 and everyone knew it was about Saudi Arabia specifically. So it's never really been a secret what these 28 pages are about. Never. It's always been reported since the time when the redacted pages came out. I remember seeing those reports myself. Um, So to my mind, this has always been a uh, kind of fallback, or or for nine for eleven, uh a limited kind of hangout type of thing to make people seem like, oh, here's what the cover-up was about, and oh yes, here it is. And again, I don't know what's in the 28 pages, I haven't read them, but I'm going to assume that if it ever came out, it would be something like, yes, it turns out the Saudis were playing a few tricks behind our backs, and you know, well, we didn't want to release that because it's a bit embarrassing, but, uh, but you know, well, we we dealt with that in our own way or whatever. Something along those lines. I, again, I think that this would not be the 28 pages. I don't think it's going to come out and everyone's going to go, oh my God, 9-11 was an inside job. Um, I I wish it were so. I hope I'm wrong. But I don't think that the putting our faith in the 28 pages is going to be that important. But there are ways to use this 28 pages or at least what we think they contain, as a window into the real story of 9-11 and the real intelligence manipulation and machinations that made the Saudi involvement in 9-11, there was Saudi involvement in various ways uh, through various puppets and, and actors living with FBI informants and, and things like this. I mean, there were, and of course, I mean, 1519 hijackers got their passports in Saudi Arabia, But that is actually a window into the real story of 9-11, and one that is actually being covered right now, uh, something that I've just learned about and will be covering in the future. Uh, J. Michael Springman, who you might remember from a previous interview that we did on corporatereport.com, also, of course, in my Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist documentary that the ending never existed. I never finished that documentary, but uh, I did include uh, Springman's testimony in there, where, of course, he was the one who was working at the Jeddah consulate that was that was responsible for the issuing 15 of the, or however many of the, the hijackers' passports. He worked there in the ni- late 1980s, before all the 9-11 hijackers came over, but he, at that time, had found out that the the, the consulate, that CIA people in that consulate were issuing passports to terrorists. Uh, they weren't calling them terrorists. At that time, there were freedom fighters fighting the uh, the uh, the Russians in Afghanistan, but that's what was going on there, and lo and behold, the very same consulate is the one where all of these uh, hijacker passports were issued. So he has just written a book called Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rock the World, and uh, you can find out more about this from Wayne Madsen, who just posted up a, uh, a article on intrepidreport.com, timely book on Saudi CIA backing of Al-Qaeda. I'm looking forward to this book. As I say, I'm—I've just found out about it in the last couple of days, so I've ordered my book copy, and I'm going to have uh, Springman on the program in the future to talk about it. So, look forward to that. But yes, I think the 28 pages could be a potential trap to be sprung um, as a limited hangout, and I think that there are bigger—or well, uh, at any rate, we can use the the leverage of the information that's uh, that the, the, that's being generated from this as a type of jiu-jitsu move to use that momentum against the official story itself, which is only going to be bolstered by narratives of how the Saudis tricked us in some way. All right. Excellent, important question. Um, let's move on to an audio question. And again, you can record uh, audio questions for this by going to the contact page and using the SpeakPipe application. Here we have an audio question in from Yosephus.
3: Hello, James. As far as your new year's resolution to focus on solutions, it would behoove you to purchase the book, How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Ever Thought Possible on Less Land Than You Can Possibly Imagine, 8th Edition by John Jevons. My wife and I have been learning the garden for over a decade now, and as of last year, we're producing 70% of our own food, with the ultimate goal being, of course, over 100% feeding our friends and neighbors. In every location, there is a learning curve, but for a specific site, the only way to know the conditions is to begin. If one plan is to save seeds and and garden when it's the fan, I regretfully inform you, you are pretty screwed. This is extremely unwise and foolish at best. Chances are your seeds will be too old to germinate. You won't know what conditions each seed requires to become a producing plant, and unless you happen to find the best soil on earth, you'll also need to know how to properly improve your soil conditions naturally. This is all doable, but requires soil, air, water, and time. A city is a horrid place to attempt to feed your family under any condition, even under moderately sane circumstances, where people aren't trying to take the food you've managed to eat out of a rooftop garden, front lawn, or window box. Rarely will you have adequate space, sunlight, for more than a few houseplants or perhaps a small plot that will give you salad greens, but nowhere close to a full daily meal requirement. Our suggestion to you and your listeners is to get a piece of land that you love most, two or more acres, but for two adults and two children, you need a memo- minimum of 4,000 square feet. Begin with the aforementioned book and continue at bountifulgardens.org. Remember, the land and the king are one.
1: You know, off the top of my head, I don't know where the land and the king are one For that phrase comes from, but it's a very good phrase. So, hats off to you, Yosefus, and hats off to you for timing that precisely, perfectly with the ninety-second time limit on the SpeakPipe application, and uh, and a lot of information packed in there. I couldn't agree more. And again, my hats off to you for growing seventy percent of your own food. You are well on the way to self-sufficiency, which is, I think, the ultimate end goal and just the dream of many of us. And uh, the we're all trying, I hope, to take baby steps in that direction. You're already most of the way there. So uh, absolutely excellent work. And just an example, once again, that it is possible to start doing this. And again, it doesn't mean we all have to reach the 100% self-sufficiency. Uh, But any way towards that goal is another dagger in the heart of the New World Order system of control. So again, my hat's off to you and everyone out there who's even attempting to do any of this and... Wood that we had in land land poor Japan, 4,000 square feet to work with. Uh, We have a little black backyard that I'm going to be attempting with my black thumbs to grow something edible this year. And that's my humble step towards my own self-sufficiency. But I have just ordered my copy of How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Could Ever Imagine whatever that title was. <laughs> I don't remember off the top of my head. I have just ordered my copy. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see if, and if it's a bad book or not helpful for me, I'm going to blame you specifically, Yosivas. All right. Thank you very much again for that. And uh, once again, I think a good example for people to, uh, to be looking towards as we do try to achieve that goal of getting off of the systems of control. It is possible. All right, let's move on to the another mailbag question. This one from the unfortunately-acronymed WC. Was Steve Jobs for or against allowing Apple software to be compromised? Interesting question. Um, and, well, I have my own opinion and belief on this. But let's take what we can get from the public record on this. This is an open source investigation, so let's see what sources are out there. Uh, back in June of 2013, we had a, a former developer at Next who worked with Steve Jobs for over a quarter of a century, uh, Andrew Stone, who insisted that uh, Steve Jobs would have died before giving in to the NSA. And that's presumably why Apple was the last company to join the Prism uh, uh, a brouhaha in 2012. Uh, they were the last ones to sign on. So the idea is that Steve Jobs was a holdout and he was against the NSA. And after he was dead, they could proceed with their plans or whatever. Um, well, okay. Well, there's Andrew Stone's take on it, or at least what he's saying to the public. Um, I don't tend to believe it, but let's, let's see what else we can find in the public record. We do know for one thing that Steve Jobs did have actual top secret clearance that he had gained in order to work on a US government contract doing work maybe for satellites or something back in the late 1980s. We also found out that Jobs spent some time working with the government, we think on satellite related programs. In fact, in 1988 for two years, he had a top secret clearance. That clearance was taken away in 1990 when his work was done. Well, interesting, no doubt. Significant telling? Does this reveal anything about Steve Jobs' potential for being an insider? Well, I I mean it's only as convincing as you are already inclined to believe that he is an insider of some sort. If you're not inclined to believe it, then you'll just say, "Well, it was just some satellite program they worked on for two years and a story." Well, okay. All right. Well, let's see what else we can find. Uh, as I've documented before in a previous Boiling Frogs post, eye opener report, uh, the uh, there was absolutely a connection or a ser- eerie similarity between Siri launched under Jobs' stewardship and a previously announced DARPA project. In 2011, Apple introduced Siri, an intelligent personal assistant, with the latest iteration of its iPhone smartphone series. Even at the time, many analysts noted eerie similarities between Siri and other such intelligent personal assistants developed by the Department of Defense in the past.
3: Over the past three years, we've been training our PALs to monitor, retrieve, and display component planning and execution information to include the current ATO and ACO. PAL's organizing it the way the boss wants to see it. Lots of yellow halos. Mm-hmm. Do the halos mean that PAL is working in all of those applications? Yes, we've integrated PAL throughout the command center. PAL knows the battle rhythm. It'll keep you up to date. Good
2: morning, Major Reeves. I have available current SJF HQ, SOPs, schedules,
1: personnel list. Display other PALs in the air shop.
2: Display the current battle rhythm. These are my priorities attending this meeting set up my briefing prep package for guidance given to these other pals learn commander's priorities from every meeting i attend
1: here are the materials you need for the meeting we could go on detailing the uh the big Brotherish things that apple has done over the years and the ways that they're definitely steeping us into the increasingly transhumanist environment. And uh, the iCloud, of course, is just one step away from, well, you don't need hard drives. You don't need to save anything locally. It's all in the cloud. Trust us, it's all perfect. And we all know how well that worked out for certain celebrities this past year, didn't we? Um, And other things like that. We could point to a lot of different pieces of that puzzle. But I guess the question... At a certain point, we have to ask, well, I mean, not only... The the question is is limited to, is Steve Jobs, was he a willing-knowing NSA participant insider who was, you know, playing ball or whatever... And, you know, I don't have any definitive documentation on that. Let's put it that way. But regardless, in a way, it doesn't even matter if he was necessarily working in accord or in in alignment or even under the the payroll or in the pocket or whatever of these intelligence agencies. He may have been playing into their agenda simply by the nature of what he was doing, which was creating, of course, the Apple ecosystem, which, of course, is a closed wall environment. It's not an open source idea. Of course, it relies on the uh linux kernel but um but you know mac and apple and and the iphone and all of this is very much proprietary and only communicates well with each other and it creates a little ecosystem that binds people in that's hard to escape from um piecemeal so that is by its nature something that is at least usable by the intelligence agencies, even without the witting participation of someone like Steve Jobs. An example of that, of course, was released uh, back in I believe last year. Uh, no, sorry, 2013, in which there was a uh, there was a, a Der Spiegel report reporting on a NSA presentation that had been leaked that was talking about how. Uh, well, the headline is Steve Jobs is big brother and smartphone users are zombies, according to NSA cell phone tapping presentation, because the iPhone is a perfect treasure trove of data for the NSA to mine, which they are obviously very adept at doing, and they have multiple attack vectors for iPhones. So they love it when you carry the, your iPhone slab in your pocket. Steve Jobs makes them sexy and makes them you know, useful, and then the NSA mines the pay dirt um, from behind the scenes. And again, in that, in that setup, it doesn't even matter if Steve Jobs was wittingly, knowingly participating in it. I tend to think he probably was. But hey, what do I know? It doesn't even matter um, because it just does provide that perfect little pay dirt for, uh, for the intelligence agencies that want to mine up all your data. So the, the nature of the ecosystem that Apple is constructing and obviously is continuing to do so even more so now with the fingerprint scanning and the op- Apple Pay and all of these developments that have come along since Jobs' death, just continue to ensconce people more and more firmly in that transhumanist future where we're all going to be just uh, 100% data mined all the time and eventually accept the brain chips and all of that stuff. So again, I tend to believe Steve Jobs was uh, allowing Apple software to be compromised. I don't have any definitive evidence. If anyone does, please share it in the open source investigation. I'd be very interested to see it. But again, I think that uh, willing or not, he was an accomplice. All right. Let's move on to the next question. Greg writes, I wonder if you could shed any light on Indira Singh's whereabouts and current activities. I hope that you all are familiar with Indira Singh and who she was. If not, I'm going to go and ask, beg, beseech that you will go back and l- listen to an earlier episode of the Corporate Report podcast on P-TECH and the 9-11 software, or at the very least, read the transcript of that podcast, or at the very least, just look at the show notes for that podcast and follow the various links to various pieces of that podcast. It was one of the most important podcasts I put out there, not for anything that I said or contributed, but simply for the uh, contrib- contributions of Indira Singh. Suffice it to say, she was a risk consultant, a risk management consultant for JP Morgan and, and uh, some of the biggest, you know, uh, well, the JP Morgan, the biggest financial institution in the world, which is obviously interested in risk management and, and looking at Cutting edge ways to analyze risk over a complicated financial institution in real time, and even to predict things that insider trading and other things before they happened and other craziness like that. That sounds like sci-fi until you're actually, I suppose, are in the positions dealing with that type of stuff. But anyway, she, in her position, came across the company called P Tech, which leads into the heart of the 9/11 story and has the uh, the the funder who was on the IRS, who was later placed on the IRS uh, terrorist watch list, but who was still a a funder, a a sweetheart investor of P-TECH, which continued to operate in the bowels of the Pentagon and White House and everywhere else in the U.S. government, even past 9-11. Just a crazy, crazy, crazy story. And again, please go and start looking at that for yourself. Indira Singh, exceptionally important, and not a peep as far as I know, has been heard out of her since 2008. I don't know anything whatsoever that's come out of her since 2008 at which time it seems she vanished off the face of the planet i know she was she said at one point she was working on a book about her experiences as far as i know that never materialized she was doing interviews with michael corbin who was a radio uh I don't know, sort of alternative media person back in the late mid 2000 late 2000 period they were they did multiple interviews he died in mysterious circumstances and uh and I haven't heard from Indira Singh anything whatsoever in five years. Well, I've never contacted her. I've never had any contact with her. I should make that clear. But I've never heard anything about her or, or seen any interviews or anything with her since that time. So if she still exists on this planet, I don't know. And I, trust me, I've asked everyone I know who would, who has or have had ever or even potentially could have had uh, any type of contact with her. No one I've talked to knows where she is or what she's doing. So uh, I am going to put it out there for you, the listeners. If there is anyone in the crowd whatsoever that has any details whatsoever about Indira Singh or what may have happened to her, please let us all know. I, I am absolutely very interested in that, as I'm sure many other people are. Exceptionally important researcher, exceptionally important topic, completely gone off the face of the planet as far as I can tell. Very, very interesting story, and I certainly hope that we get some follow-up on that. All right, but unfortunately, I can't help you, and I hope that someone out in the listening audience will be able to. All right, let's uh, turn to Twitter for our next question. It is uh, from at Steve Dew. What's your master's in English lit take on Tolkien's disdain of allegory juxtaposed to the anarcho-religious tale Lord of the Rings? A very good question, Steve. Uh, In fact, I mean, this is... I don't know if you listened to uh, Film Literature in the New World Order episode number seven, but this is exactly what that conversation that I had at that time with Andrew Hoffman of Revelations Radio News largely revolved around. Uh, The meaning, the interpretation, the potential allegorical or at least symbolic interpretations of... Uh, of Lord of the Rings. But since we've covered this before on FLNWO number seven, why don't we just listen to a representative sample of that conversation? I'm not qualified in any way to talk about The Lord of the Rings, but if there is anything that my master's degree in Anglo-Irish literature from the Trinity (laughs) College Dublin does qualify me to talk about, it's the fact that we do not have to listen to what authors say, so we are Mm -hmm. free to interpret them as we wish. And one thing that he specifically talked against was the idea of people reading The Lord of the Rings allegorically. And I believe he was responding specifically to suggestions that The One Ring was an allegory for the atom bomb Mm -hmm. and uh, talking about it in an that sort of world War II context and he was saying uh, insisting that this was not an allegory for that and in fact this was not a strict allegory of any kind um, but again, we don't have to listen to what the author says about it we we are free to interpret the work as we will so let's let's take a look at some of the the possible allegorical interpretations of this work and some of the things that have been suggested and and perhaps what uh, what we ourselves believe of course I have my own. My own idea that the One Ring is self-evidently an allegory of political power, and it is the thing that <laughs> once uh, once people touch, even those with good intentions, it things will quickly go uh, go awry. But uh, but what's your take on this? What what uh, allegorical interpretations exist, and what do you subscribe to?
2: Well, I think the the ring is ac- absolutely a symbol. Um, however, I I do believe Tolkien, in that case, when he says. It's not an allegory. He was very consistent in his criticism of other works instead of, uh, like, for example, C.S. Lewis's work of allegory. um, Because he said allegory is kind of a – it's a little game of manipulation by the author where there's only one right answer to everything. Like this equals – you know, A equals B – a in fantasy story equals B in in real life or in you know religious meaning or what have you. Um, so he, but he said that he could not deny applicability, which he said um, was left up to the freedom of the reader. So there there is absolutely meaning to his work. It's not haphazard or. Um, Kind of postmodern attempts at meaninglessness to show the meaninglessness of, of the world or anything like that. There's there's very well thought out meaning in the way the universe um, of Middle Earth works, and in the you know morality of the characters and the the meaning of their actions and what have you. And the the Ring of Power absolutely is a the a, a key symbol, and it's the first element that he took from um, the Hobbit when he decided to write a sequel where what started out as a sequel to the Hobbit. And he decided that this ring was more than just a magic ring th- to make someone disappear, which is all it was in the Hobbit. And he kind of working like Tolkien did gave the ring a backstory back into his mythology. It, um, it resulted in him having to rewrite the, the Hobbit or at least the part of the Hobbit where, uh, Frodo finds the ring because the first part, um, or the first version didn't really make any sense. It had Golem giving him the ring willingly uh, once Frodo won the the riddle game, which of course, uh, given the character of the ring in Lord of the Rings, would never happen. So, um, and if if you you can get a lot out of the Lord of the Rings um, by looking at different characters and how they relate to the ring. Um, you have kind of Frodo and. Even Bilbo before him, to a large extent, are certainly not power mad individuals out to dominate over others. Uh, which is precisely why they're able to, to resist the power of the Ring to a large extent. Um, you know, you've got Boromir, who is who is a man, and of course, men uh, in Lord of the Rings are are very um, subject to the desire for power. And are enslaved by it, according to the story, by, by Sauron. Um, the ring race had nine of the other rings of power that were created. So there's, uh, you know, there's kind of the, the Boromir character, which would be kind of a very typical um, warrior slash politician type, ambitious type. Um, and then Denethor, his father, who, who had commanded him to, uh, to bring him the ring, but then there's um, Boromir's brother, Faramir, who uh, in a, a letter later on in his life, Tolkien said, um, represented the nearest attitude to his own in Lord of the Rings towards the Ring of Power. And uh, Faramir told Frodo that if the ring were lying by a highway, he would not bother to pick it up. And if his city was in flames, he would not bother to take the ring uh, back and use it. Because he said, you, you cannot use uh, the creation of the, of the Dark Lord uh, for good, it, it will overcome you. And th- this is the, the same wisdom seen in Gandalf's response to the ring. Uh, Galadriel, when she has the opportunity to take the ring, they know that they will take the ring with the desire to do good, but that power... Um, as the old saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And even with the best of intentions, if they wield the ring, they will become basically an evil tyrant.
1: Once again, that's from the Film, Literature, and New World Order podcast that I do on the third Monday of every month. That's an audio only podcast. So for those of you out there in YouTube land, please go to CorbettReport.com and look at that podcast where we talk about a movie or book each month usually with a special guest. And again, we talk about more more about that in that FLNW number 7, so I will direct you there for the full conversation. Let's move on to the next question, this time from a couple of different people. We have one from Stephanie. My computer has no sound. Do you have transcribed versions of all videos and sound recordings? Or Tiggy, does the Corbett report have transcripts of its broadcasts and not everyone is able to hear audio? Yeah, okay, I, I absolutely, I agree. And... A lot of my material has transcription in some form or other. Uh, not all of it. And not all of it is transcribed. I, for example, a lot of the, the, the eye-opener reports or things I've done over the years will have transcriptions of my speech, but not about of all the clips that are embedded in there. Or there's a lot of articles there, obviously, but podcasts generally don't have a transcription let me put it out there once again. If anyone out there is interested or willing to transcribe a podcast or an interview or a video that you thought was particularly effective, please do so. And I will post up the transcription on the site or post it to YouTube or whatever is appropriate. Again, I, I, unfortunately, I completely do not have time to transcribe these things myself. But if there are people out there that want to do it, it is a public service and it would be greatly appreciated by many people, including myself, of course. All right, um, let's move on to the next question. Raymond asks, James, I have a question. I'm sure people have asked you, but why did you leave Canada? Would you go back? Uh, Yes, Raymond, you are correct. I have been asked that question many, 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 many times. And I think I've covered it on QFC at least a couple of times now. Um, Let's cover it again. Uh, The best place to go, of course, for information about myself... Go to the about page of CorbettReport.com and you get sort of the miniature biography there. You also get a link to episode 163 of the podcast, which was Meet James Corbett. It was a little interview that a friend of mine conducted here in Japan about myself, about the site, about where I'm from and how I ended up here and all of that kind of stuff. So if you want that narrative in its fuller context, please go there. The long story short, there is no meaning or reason or plan or strategy behind me leaving Canada in the first place. I was just a young man who wanted to see the world. I went to Ireland to study for a year. After that, that program was winding down. I met a friend on campus one day, I asked him what he was doing. He said, I'm looking for teaching English in in Asia uh, positions. And I thought, that's an idea. I typed it into the search engine. The first thing that came up was Nova Corporation, which used to be a private teaching company here. I guess it still kind of is. Um, I applied. I got the job. Next thing you know, I'm in Japan. And there was no plan behind that or reason other than I wanted to see something else of the world. I wanted to see a bit of Asia. I thought it would be a fun way to kill a year. One year turns into two, turns into three, turns into now 11. I'm in my 11th year here in Japan with my wife and son, and uh, it's been an amazing ride. But yes, no particular reason why I left Canada. But yeah, no, I'm pretty much committed to living in Japan for the foreseeable time. Um, I wouldn't say it never mean never say never but I don't know I don't have any plans to leave uh, Japan anymore at this point if you want that fuller narrative again episode 163 has that uh, that interview um, there's an excerpt and a video excerpt of that interview in the 2009 video archive which you can obviously purchase at the Corbett report shop corporate slash shop I do of course appreciate and rely on all the DVD orders as well as donations and subscriptions so um, your support that way is appreciated as well All right, let's uh, move on. I think we only have time for one more. So here is Colleen who writes, what I cannot figure out is how can the US dollar be worth more than a Canadian dollar when that country, the USA, is in so much debt? Prints their money like toilet paper. It should be worth a whole lot less. Unless, of course, we are also overprinting money in Canada to devalue our dollar greatly. All right, thank you for that, Colleen. Well, I mean, yes, I, I think Canada is not exactly uh, fiscally conservative, shall we say. But but your point is taken. U.S. prints money like toilet paper, prints debt like toilet paper, issues, you know, trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions in, in, in uh, treasuries. and there's And so there's obviously a supply and a growing supply of U.S. dollars in the world as, you know, quantitative easing over the last few years has added even more to that supply. So, of course, when it comes to economics, when we are calculating the value of something, there's supply and demand. So there are two sides to this equation. And I think that goes some way towards answering this question. The demand for the US dollar is a bajillion times greater than the demand for the Canadian dollar because the US dollar is the world reserve currency everyone wants US dollars everyone can use US dollars it's the most liquid form of of money and it is uh, desired by everyone everywhere including of course not just individuals but central banks that need a certain amount of US dollars for calculate for for um, clearing trade ba- imbalances um, they need them as reserve currency uh, they they everyone stores US treasuries as safe haven investments because the US government will never default right and um and so the US dollar is in great demand and of course it this whole system in the last 40 years has been propped up by the petrodollar which uh is Basically, the idea that all oil burses, pretty much all oil burses, are not only denominated in dollars, but transacted in dollars, and all that money is financed back or or circulated back through the U.S. financial system, U.S. banks for U.S. treasuries, and, of course, U.S. military equipment in the uh, deal with Saudi Arabia that goes back, again, to the time of Kissinger in the 70s. So, there you go. I mean, that is the demand aspect of the U.S. dollar and why it is, at this point, the best-looking house on a bad block or ho- however you want to say it that's why the US dollar is not just doing well it is doing exceptionally well in the last year relative to the other currencies like the euro the japanese yen i mean what are the main competitors to the US dollar it's clearly a, a, a more seen as a more stable investment and more in demand than those other currencies that's why it has a relatively greater value here is the point of the question that I have always had. And I've had this question since before I knew anything about the, uh, the you know, the banksters or the powers that shouldn't be, or the, the manipulated reality of central banking or any of this. Years and years and years and years ago, I used to ask people, I I actually, I knew someone in Ireland when I was there who was a student or she was working on some kind of work program at the, the Bank of Ireland, you know, the central bank there. And, and I believe now she works in the Austrian banking system. But she, uh, I asked her, I asked economists that, that I met, accountants, I mean, anyone I met who I thought could answer the question I would ask. And no one has ever provided me an answer. It's not why is the Canadian dollar not worth more than the US dollar. It's why is the British pound worth so much more than the US dollar? If it is a question of demand... Why would the pound be valued more highly than the world reserve currency, which is absolutely in demand everywhere and constantly in demand? And I don't know. I've never gotten a straight answer on that. And it almost seems like that the epicenter of world finance is still in even in our day and age, not Washington, not the United States, but not England, but the city of London specifically. It's almost like financial power still emanates from there. And who owns and has owned since the time of Napoleon sent to the city of London and that uh, financial complex? On
0: July the 20th, 1815, the evening edition of the London Courier reported that Nathan had made great purchases of stock meaning British government bonds. Nathan's gamble was that the British victory at Waterloo would send the price of British bonds soaring upwards. Nathan bought. And as the price of bonds began to rise, he kept on buying. Despite his brother's desperate entreaties to sell, Nathan held his nerve for another year. Eventually, in July 1817, with bond prices up by 40%, he sold his holding. His profits were worth approximately 600 million pounds today. The Rothschilds had shown that bonds were more than just a way for governments to fund their wars. They could also be bought and sold in a way that generated serious money. And with money came power.
1: Ah, that's right. Well, hmm, obviously a lot more that needs to be said there, but I think those types of little questions can have very, very interesting extensions and answers and send us in interesting directions, can't they? So some things to ponder while we're looking at this manipulated reality, but let's uh, let's stop looking at the manipulated reality so much and concentrating on more of what we can actually do, people like Yosefus looking for those aspects of self-sufficiency in their lives, which is the real answer to getting ourselves off of the US dollar. Canadian dollar British pound toilet paper funny money that they want us to accept as something of value alright having said all of that again we're out of time I have to be running along before I turn into a pumpkin I do appreciate all the questions that come in so please keep them coming in and again I'm sorry I can't get to everyone I really do try to get to as many questions as I can but it's just not always possible if you think you have a great question and I didn't get to it you've already sent it in I didn't get to it send it in again and it will be added to the mix once again and uh and and again, the best rule of thumb keep it short and precise and simple. Make it an actual question. Sending me an essay and then asking what do you think probably will not be featured on QFC. All right. Having said all that, once again, I do appreciate all your support. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again soon.
2: Now available from CorbettReport.com The Data DVD, Volume 4. Every podcast, interview, episode and article published on CorbettReport.com in 2011. All on two data DVDs. For details or to buy other Corbett Report DVDs, please go to CorbettReport.com
3: slash shop.